Hello and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall, and sitting in for Emma Ashford while she's on maternity leave is Cato's Director of Foreign Policy Studies, John Glazer. Hi, John. Hi, Trevor. Uh, The recent missile attack on Saudi Arabia's oil facilities uh, were a bracing reminder that one's adversaries have a vote in how things go in international affairs. After Trump's withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal, the administration uh, has really ratcheted up the pressure on Iran and, unsurprisingly, tensions eventually mounted. And over the past several months, we've seen signs that this story might not have a peaceful ending. If you can trust the reporting from the U.S. and Saudi intelligence services, uh, the latest chapter in the story was an Iranian-backed missile attack that knocked out maybe 5% of Saudi Arabia's oil production. Trump did not launch an immediate military strike against Iran, but it is clear that all options are on the table at this point. So a burning question here is how will the United States manage this mounting confrontation with Iran? But that question just cannot be disentangled from the broader discussion of America's Middle East strategy moving forward. Happily, we are joined today by someone who has been giving America's Middle East strategy a lot of thought. Gregory Gauss is professor and the John H. Lindsay 44 chair at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University, where he is also a faculty affiliate of the school's Albritton Center for Grand Strategy. Gregory, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Let's start with some news, as we usually do. Um, Almost a year after the murder of the Washington Post uh, journalist Jamal Khashoggi, uh, the Saudi crown prince uh, said he takes full responsibility for the crime, uh, but then actually denied all responsibility by saying he didn't order the killing. Um, What are your thoughts there? Well, uh, I think he basically said he takes responsibility for everything that happens. I think everybody who runs a red light everybody who doesn't pay their electric bill on time, he's responsible for that. So it was a a blanket kind of responsibility that, as you said, basically says no responsibility. I'm confident that these kinds of operations uh, can't be uh, mounted from Saudi Arabia without the crown prince's approval. Now, whether the crown prince said, go in and kill this guy, or whether the crown prince said, bring them back. And if you can't bring them back, well, you know, I I don't want to know what goes on. Uh, Who knows about that level? But I think that that his level of responsibility for this is much more direct than I'm responsible for everything that happens in the Saudi government. Yeah. You know, I find it a little strange that uh, the only person outside of Saudi Arabia that wants to deny the uh, crown prince's responsibility for this act seems to be Donald Trump. Uh, the CIA has said that their estimation, medium to high confidence, that that uh, uh, you know this was official policy ordered by the crown prince, um, and so. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of obfuscation with regard to our policy in Saudi Arabia, mostly to distract from how uh, weak the foundations of it are. What I just don't understand, and and Greg, maybe maybe you can help me here, but why? I thought this was kind of already litigated. Why bring this up now if you're MBS? Well, I, I think MBS is still on the on the rehabilitation campaign, uh, but. It's not just him. I mean, the Washington Post brings it up all the time, and uh, that's understandable. Jamal worked for the Washington Post, uh, but uh, I, this is an issue that's not going away in D.C. I'm sure that if it were 
lower on the radar screen in D.C. If the Washington Post and Congress were treating it the way the White House is, I'm not sure that the the crown prince would be talking about it to to 60 Minutes and and other people. Yeah, it is an interesting sort of note about the power of powerful media, I guess, in addition to other things. All right, uh, over to Somalia, where, um, where Al-Shabaab, uh, speaking of something that almost never makes the news, uh, Somalia, um, where Al-Shabaab has claimed credit for a couple of attacks against US and EU forces. And the United States, as it usually does, has struck back in response, killing some couple of handfuls of, of fighters. But you know, reading this, I get a deep sense of, uh, that the US is playing a a sort of a tragic game of whack-a-mole that it can never win. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the the biggest surprise to me out of this story is that we still have forces in Somalia. Uh, and and this is the, if you will, the hangover of the GWAT, right? The global war on terror. I'm not sure Al-Shabaab were ever a, a, a serious threat to American interests, except when American interests decided that we had to have a major uh, presence in Somalia, whether it goes back to to George H.W. Bush's uh, intervention in Somalia. The, the, our hero down here at the Bush School were named after George H.W. Bush, not George W. Bush. Uh, but his intervention in Somalia that then led to the, the Black Hawk Down incident in the early Clinton administration. You know, the, the idea that, that American military forces are still in Somalia is, is probably something that would surprise even people who follow foreign policy pretty closely. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a it's um it's an indication of how easy it is for policy to not change without an abrupt sort of um change to the discussion. So, you know, post 9/11, we've been meddling in more than a dozen uh, African nations on a counterterrorism basis. Um with no clear direct authority that the president can point to in terms of uh Congress granting him the the authority to to engage in this kind of activity in Africa. Uh there's certainly not an imminent threat that we need to be uh foiling in order to protect the American homeland. Um, and without a real, uh, you know, a concentrated effort to repeal the AUMF, uh, on which the administration presumably bases the legitimacy for its military actions in Africa, um, we're going to continue to see this kind of low-level conflict um, without authority from Congress. I, I think there also might be a bureaucratic angle to this. I mean, we established AfricaCom, the African Command. Uh, I, I forget what year, but it was post two thousand seven. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was two, okay, two thousand seven. When you have a command, it wants to do things, uh, and and I, I'm not sure that we ever had a, a great need for an Africa command. But now that we have it, I can imagine that the folks there are, uh, you know, uh, coming up with with plenty of of missions for them to to conduct. I completely agree. And is that, you know, I think just a, a couple of years ago, John Bolton stood on a stage and elucidated for the nation President Trump's Africa strategy. And there is a lot going on. There's a lot of opportunities for us to be investing in uh, African nations, reform, counterterrorism efforts. And it is being pushed through the bureaucracy. And so, in terms of what we know from the Middle East, which we'll talk about soon, the kind of policy inertia that leads to one set of approaches uh, that are not again reevaluated. I think that seems to be the direction things are going in China. Uh, sorry, Africa. 
Yep. Yep. It's to me, it's sort of like the dark web of foreign policy. It's it's out there. No one ever sees it. No one hears about it. We never debate it. So it goes on unchallenged. And that's a scary thought. All right. Last one. Um, sticking in the Middle East here. Um, and this is all right. So talk about the media. This is a mystery to me. So so a couple of days ago, I saw a report that the Houthis had uh, released a video um, claiming to provide evidence that they had killed 500 Saudi troops and captured another couple thousand in an attack over the Saudi border in, in southern Saudi Arabia. But since then, the Saudis haven't said anything. The US hasn't said anything. It, media reports are sort of like not the usual that you'd expect from such a thing. Did it just not happen? Is this a fake? Is it real? If it's real, what the heck does it mean? seems like a big deal. Yeah. I, I, I share some of these questions. Uh, but I think it was from early September, if I recall the claim. So like a month ago and in between a lot of stuff has happened, like, uh, you know, these missiles hitting a Saudi, hitting Saudi oil facilities. So, it, it, and, and there has been a, a slight shift in at least the, the, the rhetoric coming out of Saudi where they're talking about a partial ceasefire with the Houthis, and some elements of the Houthis are talking about the fact that, well, you know, uh, the Iran we're we're not connected with the Iranians, and uh, you know, this uh, attack on the Saudi oil facilities that really uh, we we didn't want to have anything to do with that. So I I think that there's there's a sense that maybe on in both Riyadh and in Sanaa that that parties might be rethinking, and and I wonder if the release of this video. And, and this is me blue skying it, uh, has something to do with a, a dispute among the Houthi leadership about whether they should double down with the Iranians or whether they should seek to have some kind of, of, of uh, understanding with the Saudis that might lessen the severity of the military confrontation. And, and if, you're, if you're a hardliner in the Houthis, uh, one way to to scuttle that is to show that uh, show the public that you're beating the heck out of the Saudis. Yeah, I share your frustration, Trevor, that uh, the media hasn't been able to confirm this one way or the other. Uh, I think that's just the nature of the limits of being able to go into the field and confirm something like this. It, they are extraordinary claims on the part of the Houthis. But Greg is right too that I think uh, things have shifted since this incident allegedly occurred, and you know the Saudis have been bombing Yemen relentlessly for four or five years now, uh, with no real strategic gain that you can point to. Certainly not a tangible kind. And I think after the attack on the Saudi oil facilities and the ratcheting up of U.S. Iran tensions, um, and what's going on in the Persian Gulf with tankers and so on, I think the Saudis might be turning a corner and saying, boy, this conflict is more costly than it's worth. Yep. All right. Well, that's a good pivot point then. So let's let's sort of roll into our, our broader topic for the day. And, you know, there's obviously a lot to talk about, um, but I want to start with the tensions with Iran. And, you know, I, I was surprised that after the attack on the oil facilities that Trump didn't order some kind of military response, something. Um, but where do things stand now? I mean, it, we've had again. There's been a lot of news on all fronts since then. So you know, maybe things are just on hold. But is conflict still a possibility? It seemed real uh, a while back. Oh, I, I definitely think conflict is still a possibility because the Iranians haven't gotten what they want. I mean, I think what they wanted from this escalation from you know mines uh, on 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 ships 
outside of the of the Strait of Hormuz to the downing of the drone to uh, the attack on the on the Saudi oil facilities, which which t- took out not not uh, Trevor. I got a I, I I've got to call you on this one. It didn't take out five percent of Saudi uh, production. It took out five percent of world production. That's a much bigger number. Yeah, that's that that's how important uh, wow. it was, right? We, we uh, there's about a hundred million barrels of oil produced a day, and this took out five five about five million. So, the Saudis say that they're back online. I don't know. We'll we'll I'll, I'll leave that up to the oil press, which is actually uh, uh, as a as a business press, as an industry press, really kind of a, they're they're interesting. They have really good sources, and we'll we'll see if the Saudis actually have gotten back to uh, full production capacity. In any event, I was very surprised too that the Trump administration didn't react. But the Iranians want a reaction. I think they, they, they're they escalating to get to get some kind of international agreement that, that we've got to ratchet down, and that includes some sanctions relief for the Iranians. And so I think that, that you know, the Trump administration, at least in my eyes, did, did uh, absolutely the wrong thing in reaction. They they didn't do anything to to reestablish some kind of deterrence level. So uh, people in Iran who like to shoot things off, I think now think, well, you know, there's no real cost to us to do that. And they increased if you can if you can find a way to increase what the president said were historically the most severe sanctions ever put on anyone in the history of the world. We then found some way to increase them. So we, we've basically just given the Iranians even more incentive to do this again. Uh, and, and, and so I, I, I definitely think that there's conflict possibilities down the road. Greg, how would you describe the Trump administration's strategy on Iran? Is there a clear kind of articulable, coherent strategy that they've kept to even in response to kind of unforeseen actions like this attack on the Saudi oil facilities? I think there. I think that the Trump administration is drawn in two directions. Uh, one, they were elected to get out of Middle East wars. To some extent, the Obama administration was elected to get out of Middle East wars, and and it's interesting that we still find ourselves in Middle East wars. But that's a bigger question. Maybe we can get to. But on the other hand, the Trump administration came in saying Iran's a paper tiger, and if we stand up to these guys, uh, they one of two things will happen. Uh, we put the pressure on these guys, maximum pressure. Either they will collapse, and I think there was a lot of talk in right-wing circles. Uh, I heard it down here in Texas uh, that the the uh, there has been there there have been you know last year a number of demonstrations in provincial towns in Iran over economic issues, and and there was this notion, oh, this regime is 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 getting hollow, it's getting weak. Just give them a little push, and they'll and they'll collapse, or uh, and I think this is what President Trump was thinking. They'd come back to the table. Uh, they'd come back. They would run up the white flag, come back to the table, and I could get a better deal and show that Obama was uh, was a softy, and I and I can get a better deal. But I, I, in a piece of analytical malpractice, I think the administration didn't recognize that that the Iranians had other options, like uh, try to hit. Uh, other elements of the of the the Persian Gulf oil industry, like tankers, and then like facilities. So uh, that I think leaves the Trump administration in in kind of a bind. Uh, do you climb down? They want to climb down. It's clear that the president wants to see Rouhani. I mean, he he developed this bizarre thing with Macron to talk to Rouhani without actually meeting him, 
at the UN. Yeah, Greg, Greg uh, let, and, me, let me jump in there and, and ask you specifically on that. I, I read a, a, the really good New Yorker piece by Robin Wright about that phone call. But to me, it sounded the, the sort of the lesson I took from that was that despite what you just said was the Trump's uh, administration's approach trying to get toward a deal and, and talking, Trump keeps not talking. Is that, is that because he's got ADD and he doesn't realize this is now when you when you close that loop or is it something else? I think that the, he's got different he's got different people talking to him about Iran. That's for sure. Uh, and when he listens to the to the Israelis, when he listens to some of the hardliners in Congress on Iran, his buddy Lindsey Graham, it's you know keep the pressure on. And 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 part of the response to the Abkhaz attacks were if- keep the pressure on, up the pressure. Uh, but he clearly doesn't want a war, and he clearly wants a deal. But he wants a deal that doesn't look like he's backing down. He wants a deal where the Iranians come to him. And the Iranians have their own domestic politics. Uh, and and the people who who he wouldn't do the deal with, you know, Rouhani and Zarif, are the people that he undercut by withdrawing from JCPOA. And I think that they're constrained. Uh, Rouhani and Zarif are constrained uh, because they have people at home saying, look, you said we meet these great Satans and we do a, we do a deal and we get sanctions re- relieved and everything's fine and our economy's better. And what happens? These guys screw us. So you're you're asking us to believe that that you can do an, another deal with these people, and so I think that that uh, there's it's not as open in Iran for the kind of deal, the kind of dialogue that Trump wants to have. Yeah. So I, but you know, the JCPOA seems like the linchpin of their of their broader strategy. But you know, you said, and and this is one of the things that frustrates me a lot about the way people talk about Iran is on the one hand, you have this paper tiger sort of, I think it's a myth, but it's, you know, a theory that all you do is a sharp rap on the nose, some maximum pressure, and they'll come to the table. And on the other hand, you have the national security strategy saying they're the biggest problem in the Middle East, and our entire strategy in the Middle East is sort of predicated on the fact that they're taking over. Um, you can't both be a paper tiger and the biggest threat to world peace in the Middle East, can you? What's what's the real strategy? Is there a strategy here or just a bunch of crap? <laughs> so, but... I mean, let's go back to the Soviet Union as a as a, a, a potential analog here, a comparative case. You know, we, we for decades in the United States said they were taking over, but they turned out to be something of a paper tiger, right? And and uh, they died with a whimper, not a bang. I think that there's a there's a lot of wishful thinking in Washington about the Iranians. I think that there was some wishful thinking on the Obama administration side with JCPOA that it would uh, quote unquote strengthen the moderates and in the long game, you know, playing the long game, the, the that Iranian foreign policy behavior in the Middle East would moderate. I wasn't so sure about that, uh, although I thought JCPOA was a good idea and I was very supportive of it. The idea that the Iranians would give up the geopolitical positions they'd established in Lebanon and Syria and Iraq that they paid for with their own blood and treasure just to, because, you know, we would smile at them if they did never seemed to me to be all that practical. But I think the wishful thinking in the Trump administration is more serious in, in that they're they're backing the Iranians into a corner uh, in the wishful thinking that that this will change Iranian behavior. Yeah. And I think it's it's doubly wishful on because of the simple fact that when you're trying to uh, bully someone 
in their own neighborhood, it gets really, really tough. I mean, it's just not easy. I mean, if Iran were meddling about in Cuba uh, to pull (laughs) the analogy back, I think we could probably convince them that was a bad idea. But to keep them out of Lebanon, forget it. It might be worth mentioning that uh, this reaction from Iran was not only predictable, but predicted. The CIA, according to reports that leaked the the, uh, information, uh, predicted that if we pull out of the JCPOA and return to a posture of maximum pressure and try to sanction the Iranians into capitulation, they'll react pretty harshly. They'll attack forces in the region, try to disrupt oil traffic. They won't capitulate. Uh, they might violate the JCPOA, uh, which they stuck to a year after Trump withdrew. Uh, this was all predicted and very predictable. So it's unfortunate that the Trump administration is not taking the advice of its own experts. Well, you'd have to believe the deep state. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it, just on a pure sort of geopolitical statecraft level, I feel like uh, Iran um, executed a, a what I will call a, a rock, paper, scissors win over the U.S. where, you know, you're both shaking your hand and, you know, who puts out the right tool to beat the other guy's tool. And, and Iran's um, maneuvers have been sort of sideways, nonlinear, sneaky, indirect, um, and had the uh, the ability to really signal quite clearly their um, you know, intentions and and provide deterrent effects against the U.S. And the U.S. has had no answer, has had no sneaky plan of their own to increase the pressure other than adding more X's to the word maximum when it, yeah. when it you know, so, um, you know, kudos uh, to Iran, I guess, for that. Um, Although I, I, I would say that the, that the Abqaiq attack did represent a, a shift in strategy for the Iranians because the Iranians had uh, been extremely successful in playing into the civil wars and the weak states of the Arab world. Uh, This is something that began decades ago in Lebanon, a a classic weak state. Uh, It it accelerated with the United States uh, finally uh, pushing over the state in Iraq, the Saddam regime, and creating an open playing field for the Iranians to intervene. And then the, uh, the, the, the results of the Arab Spring gave the Iranians uh, uh, an entree into, uh, well, they had the entree in Syria, but it redoubled their commitment to Syria and and it opened up more possibilities for them in Yemen. But this was, as 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 I, I don't know if it was John or, or, or Trevor, but somebody in Washington said that uh, the Iranians were, were, were very skillful at this, and they are. I mean, they, they, they beat the heck out of the Saudis in this game, and they certainly are beating the heck out of us in this game. But the attack on Abqaiq, is is like going from a four on a 10 point scale to an 11 because this was uh you know implausibly deniable direct assault military assault on on a, a middle east rival and not and not blowing up an airfield or or blowing up an embassy or blowing up a military facility it was it was getting right at the heart of what makes saudi arabia function and why Saudi Arabia is important to not just the United States, but you know the rest of the world, and that was a that was an escalation that I didn't anticipate because the Iranians were doing so well in these other fields to to kind of invite escalation to what they have been avoiding for ages, which is a direct you know kind of conventional military standoff with the U.S. Really surprised me. Yeah, I don't think we can underestimate the importance of 
two features of what's going on in Iran right now. Number one, the economic sanctions really are punishing. People are having trouble putting food on the table, importing the right kind of medicines for cancer and hemophilia patients. Uh, inflation is out of control, unemployment. This is causing real people by the millions a lot of harm. And then the other feature that's happening is that, uh, as Greg mentioned, the hawks in Iran have won out as a result of this. They told everyone else that you couldn't trust the United States. And now reformers and moderates like Rouhani and Zarif have egg on their faces. So the Trump administration's withdrawal from the JCPOA and return to maximum pressure essentially had the effect of elevating about 100 John Boltons inside Iran. And now they're kind of winning on policy and that should be expected. Yeah. And I, the other thing that's interesting and, you know, I'm not a Saudi watcher, so Greg, maybe you have a thought here, but I, the fact that that Saudi Arabia itself did not feel compelled to respond itself militarily tells you a lot about where their confidence is, I guess, maybe you'd say, or or the fact that they are just so um, you know bolted to the hip to the United States that they they basically can't do anything themselves at this point. I don't know which one it is. I, I think it's probably both. Uh, the, in the same way that I don't think the Iranians really want a direct conventional military confrontation with the United States, the Saudis don't want a direct military confrontation with Iran, uh, even though they outspend the Iranians by factors of four, five, six. I'd have to look at the numbers in terms of defense budgets and, and weapons acquisitions. This is not a country that is uh, that has been aggressive in the use of its own armed forces. And it, if you look, there, there, there one real military reaction to the Arab Spring. Uh, has been in Yemen, which is probably the place they were least likely to confront the Iranians directly. You don't see the the Saudis behaving this way in Syria, even though they were very uh, they, they they had great hopes that the fall of Bashar al-Assad would lead to a rollback of Iranian influence there. So I, I think that the Saudis are very reluctant to take on the Iranians in any kind of conventional military uh, uh, way, despite the crown prince's occasional braggadocio. And two, they're they're still basically tied to the United States, and they're reluctant to move. And and Yemen is kind of a, a a test case of their effort to kind of move, kind of without the United States, and it hasn't turned out that well. Yeah, no, exactly. I, confidence probably not running high in Riyadh. All right, let's 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 pull back the lens even just a little further. Um, and you know, Greg, you wrote a very provocative piece, excellent piece, in the most recent issue of the journal Survival, in which the title of the article poses the question, should we stay or should we go? And I, I think you start off by you know, very rightly pointing out there's more debate over the appropriate level of American presence in the Middle East than there's been in a long time. Um, but you know, maybe just for people who haven't read this article yet, maybe you could give us a sense on sort of both sides. What, what are the current sort of compelling arguments for, for getting out and for staying? Well, I, I was kind of... Uh inspired to do this by the fact that, the, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I thought that the last three elections were won by the, the candidate who was more dovish on the Middle East, who was critical of our military adventures in the Middle East, and who said there, it was time to draw down. Uh, then there's this paradox that, that we're still there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but also by the, the, the kind of the chattering class in Washington, uh, of which I, I guess I consider myself a, 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 a fringe member, uh, more and more people who were uh, very committed to a, a, an intense American involvement in the region 
either for a democracy and human rights agenda or for a, uh, an oil protection agenda, are basically now saying, well, you know, we tried, we failed. Oil's not as important as it used to be. Uh, time to pivot to Asia. We're tired of this part of the world. We can't change this part of the world. Let's go. Uh, and and in the article, I, I make a, a number of references to folks, some of whom have been arguing uh, this point for for a while, uh, including I think I think I cite Emma Ashford in you that do, article. You do fact. indeed. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, best wishes to her. Uh, and and uh, and some kind of have just come around. Uh, uh, Tamara Kaufman Wittes uh, at Brookings, who is a very vocal supporter of uh, democracy promotion. Uh, uh, efforts in the Middle East has, uh, wrote a piece with a co-author uh, in foreign affairs that basically ran up the white flag, said, well, we tried, we failed, time to stop. So I, I just thought it was interesting that that from, from a number of places along the political spectrum in the debate, you're starting to get people saying uh, the game's not worth the candle in the Middle East. It only took about 18 years or so for people to get the memo, I guess. Um, but the oh, better late I, than I never. Think, I think we could say 30. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Um, in, and so, you know, what, What's your sense, though? Like, one of the things you um, note, a, a sort of in passing, a, a phrase, and I'm going to get it wrong. John, there's this a phrase by um, Mark Lynch that you cite. Just the structural realities of our yeah. presence in the Middle East and how that kind of... Uh, puts a lot of uh, friction in terms of changing U.S. policy from the top down. Right. And I, and I think that those structural realities are both bureaucratic and political. Uh, one of the structural realities is that the, the Pentagon poured a lot of concrete in the Persian Gulf. Uh, and we have a substantial uh, force in the Gulf, uh, even before these... Uh, these Abkhaz, the Abkhaz attacks, which led to some new forces going in, but, but I, I just thought it was interesting that that when President Obama left office, we had about sixty thousand troops in the Middle East, not counting Afghanistan. And when I wrote the article uh, after you know two two and a half years of President Trump's administration, we had sixty thousand troops in the Middle East. Basically, uh, I, I think that the Pentagon uh, it, it would take quite a bit to change the the basing structure which has you know 10 to 15,000 troops in Kuwait the 5th fleet in Bahrain uh, the central command basically running out of El Odeid air base in Qatar plus access to facilities in Oman and and uh, and the UAE and and occasionally in Saudi uh, it's hard to it's hard to change those standard operating procedures that that would be a and and be the political elements of this is that, you know, we we are kind of conditioned to think uh, because of oil, because of Israel, uh, because the Iranians say nasty things about us, uh, and and occasionally do nasty things, uh, that that uh, that we have to be there. And I, I'm not unsympathetic to elements of that argument, but I think that we have to be we have to be uh, more hard headed about what exactly we want to be there for and what we want to do. So, Greg, I think in the in the piece, you you basically make an argument for a much reduced U.S. military presence there. Essentially, keep the overall force posture, but uh, sort of drop these costly uh, counterterrorism and regime change type policies. 
um, and that we should just basically return to a very basic policy of uh, having enough forces there to deter major disruptions to the free flow of oil. One of the biggest ideas in kind of the restraint literature is this idea of temptation. That is to say, you know, you give policymakers tools at their disposal that they can use in a moment of crisis or otherwise, um, and, and they'll use them at the appropriate times. But certainly over the past 30 years in the Middle East, it seems to me that, you know, U.S. leaders have not demonstrated that they can be trusted to have these tools on offer all the time. You know, there's, there's that old... Bernard Brody quote, um, one way of keeping people out of trouble is to deny them the means for getting into it. So for a political capital, Washington, that has launched an aggressive illegal war that got hundreds of thousands of people killed, continues to engage in, you know, unauthorized military conflict, destabilize the region, zero out Iranian oil exports, et cetera, et cetera. Why should we grant policymakers uh, a, a indefinite military presence in the Middle East if they've demonstrated that they will misuse it? Well, I would say that, that uh, those are powerful arguments, but one can hope that, A, we, if, if we have a more coherent strategy about just why we want to be in the Middle East, I think that, uh, and, and, and move away from these regime change fantasies and move away from this notion that, uh, that terrorism is uh, an existential threat to the United States, I think that we could focus in on more limited interests that we have. And I think, although I didn't make this argument in the in the uh, survival piece, it's something that that I'm coming more directly around to is uh, if our if our main reason for being in the Persian Gulf, and we'll set aside the Israeli issue, uh, if our main reason for being in the Persian Gulf is is free flow of oil, uh, the biggest threat to the free flow of oil, say, between Saddam Hussein torching the Kuwaiti oil fields and the attack on uptake, uh, the biggest threat to the free fall of oil was us. I mean, we're the ones putting sanctions on Saddam Hussein at the beginning, and now uh, and, and sanction, we've had sanctions on Iran forever, uh, and more effective sanctions, as you guys have pointed out, uh, which was surprising to me, but, but we have truly weaponized the American financial system in a way that we can cut off a medium-sized power like Iran from the from the world economy in many ways, uh, and I think that that if we refocus on the idea that what we want to do is sustain the free flow of oil, and and leave to the larger question of 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 climate change and renewables and is oil a good thing to larger political debates and tax policies and all the kinds of things that we should be doing domestically to, to cut down on our, our our use of carbon. But if we if we can focus in on 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 a policy of trying to sustain the free flow of oil, then I think we'd we'd have a very different look in the Middle East. But I still think given the fractiousness of the place, that there's an insurance policy element for keeping some military infrastructure there, not that we can uh, stop domestic uh, turmoil in places. But as we saw in the attack on Abkhik, uh, there are still incentives for regional powers to strike other regional powers' oil facilities. And I think what we got to get to is a, is a norm, uh, and, I, and a norm with some amount of, of muscle behind it, that basically says, we, the United States, as the big power, 
we're not going to 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 attack or uh, try to hit. We're not going to attack your oil facilities or try to hinder you from uh, exporting oil. Uh, but you need to do the same thing. Yeah, you know, I, I'd I'd believe that if I was a Middle Eastern oil exporter, if it wasn't the U.S. in charge of all of that. Like, mm-hmm. I, if I were the Middle East, I'd say, you know what? It wouldn't be a bad idea if we had some mutually agreeable manner of ensuring that none of us was going to have to worry about the others in terms of oil flow. Uh, but there I would see a UN, a permanent mission to the Strait of Hormuz or something, uh, some set of UN uh, sorts of things. I, I wouldn't really trust the U.S. at this point. And, 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 and on the idea that the U.S. needs to leave, you know, bases around for as insurance policies, I'm not sure like how many of those things have actually happened that we didn't start that w- we would need them there for. I, I don't, I'm not sure, you know, everyone has a different level of risk tolerance, but my sense is that the, you know, you build an AFRICOM, you're going to use it. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You mentioned the the incentives in the region that, that apparently still uh, press countries to try to disrupt the oil or take, you know, uh, provocative actions like the one on the Saudi oil fields. But of course, we imposed those incentives, didn't we, by trying to uh, prevent Iran from exporting oil. So, oh yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not arguing that point at all. I, I, I would, I would have a very different policy toward Iran. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. But, but I, but that's not the only example. I mean, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait at a time when you know we were trying to sweet talk him. And uh, and while you know you can argue, well, Saddam would have sold us the oil. Uh, I, I do think that there was a risk in having somebody who uh, was a- as ambitious as Saddam sitting on not just Iraqi oil but Kuwaiti oil and perhaps having leverage on Saudi oil. So by that time, you're up to uh, about thirty percent. Well, twenty. I guess at the time, twenty percent of world oil production. That would that would have been. Uh, so I, I mean, I actually thought that the the ninety ninety one Gulf War was uh, a justifiable use of force by the United States in American interests. So it, it's not just you know I think we got to draw back from this. We're gonna we're gonna put maximum pressure on you, oil producers, uh, to a point where we say, look, you guys have your own fights, but you got to keep them by Marcus of Queensbury rules, and those rules mean you don't attack each other's oil facilities, you don't attack each other's oil tankers, and we're there to to be the referee. Now, whether it's under a UN mandate, a UN mandate would be great, but I, somebody's still got to enforce that UN mandate. Uh, so I, I, that's kind of my argument for the insurance policy. You've got to find a way to not let the referee also bet on the game and play. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll sign on to that. Yes. Sounds, sounds good. All right. Last, last, bit then is looking ahead. Um, you know, we, we talked about the fact there's a lot of inertia in U.S. policy for all sorts of reasons, bases, arms sales, troops, politics, and so on. Um, but, I, you know, we have an election coming up. Could be an interesting one. Um, but does it matter who wins? Is, is U.S. policy toward the Middle East going to change in the near future um, because of a president or, or not? That's a great question. I, I don't think it's going to change if President Trump gets reelected because we have a sense of, of what his policy is, which is, you know, this kind of uh, somewhat contradictory maximum pressure on Iran, but we don't want to fight any wars. And we, uh, we love the Israelis and we love uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and we're going to give him all sorts of, of symbolic things that he really likes, but we're not really going to do much to try to 
move any kind of quote unquote peace process along. But I think on the Democratic side, we're seeing the the fruits of this foreign policy debate. Uh, I think both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren would have very different policies towards Saudi Arabia than Barack Obama and Bill Clinton did. Uh, I think that there's a, a, a real desire to rethink the relationship with Saudi Arabia uh, for a number of reasons. One is, you know, oil bad. Uh, we got to get away from oil anyway. Uh, two, uh, the Saudis have gone partisan and they've they've basically thrown in their lot with the Republicans by being uh, as nasty as they were to President Obama and as embracing as they are of President Trump. Uh, and three, we don't need their oil. And, and that's an argument that to me is the core argument that uh, that's worth talking about. Uh, the idea that we don't need their oil and thus who cares? So I do think that, uh, you know, a Biden administration would look like an Obama administration, I think, on foreign policy towards Saudi Arabia. But I think a Sanders or a Warren administration uh, might be the first serious rethink of the quote unquote special relationship. That is a provocative final take. Um, thanks so much for joining us today, Greg. It was my pleasure. And thanks to our producer, Cecil Sherman, and all of you for listening. To continue the conversation, our Twitter handle is at Power Problems. And if you like the show, leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts.